the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of KDOW or its management owners or advertisers and should not be construed as legal tax or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. 1220 KDOW presents Rob Black and Your Money. Your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finance, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800-516-1220. So call in. We'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now to start your day with the latest news and market commentary. Here's Rob Black on the Bay Area's business leader, 1220 KDOW. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Anything that you want to talk about, we can talk about. Um, let's start with taking a look at the markets from yesterday and kind of put a spin on them for today. Stock market had a rough start to the short week as each of the major indices lost over 1%. That's a pretty rough day. Don't have to play, so you had a bad day. Because you don't really care about the market on a day-by-day basis. You care about it on a year-over-year, quarter-over-quarter Days, eh. too moody. So the basis for positive disposition isn't so clear as to why yesterday was so bad and today so positive. You know, at the start of the day, anything's possible. It's how you close. Europe seems to be drawing some attention to the proximate cause. The reason being is that markets there are trading higher, despite being solved. Uh, with respect to Greece. Um, Greece isn't the country I'm worried about. Spain's the country I'm worried about, in my opinion. So Tuesday's difficulties, i.e. yesterday, short weeks always throw me, um, tie, a lot of angst tied towards Greece. And they're saying, you know, they're posturing, oh, no, we're not going to pay. So there's been some resilience in European markets. Um, given that narrative that it's part of the participants' faith that a Greek default exit can be digested without any great upset, Greece just isn't that important. But could it lead to another? Such a tired back-and-forth depiction of matters, which seems to hinge on whether the, you know, the market leans a new way. Greece is a problem. Greece isn't a problem. Greece is a problem. Greece isn't a problem. We've known about their problems for five-plus years now actually longer if you go back to when their debt issue started becoming downgraded 10 plus years. So several factors today tied towards the market. Oil prices are lower. Dollar is stronger. Um, shorter dated charges of securities, which are more sensitive to policy change, are soft. Tiffany beat expectations. Um, high-end retailer. Michael Kors missed expectations. Low-end no, no, high-end retailer, but very low-end uh, on the sales. Um, 
and they disappointed with guidance. So that stock's down 14 plus percent. It's like Michael Kors, they do uh, purses and such. Tiffany's more jewelry. Movado came up a bit shy. Brown shoe, topped expectations. Chico's was in line. Chico's was a real popular growth stock back in the 1990s. Um, they basically make clothes that look like a parrot ate some crayons and vomited them on. So they're very colorful, like crayon colorful. Um, and Chico's made clothes that kind of had some elastic in them, i.e. they weren't made for the perfect-bodied woman, uh, maybe a woman who's uh, got a little bit more figure. So they were a really big growth story in the 1990s. Not so much now. And I remind you of that because at some point in time, Chipotle, we'll go 10 years from now, we'll be like, oh, yeah, I remember when Chipotle was a big growth company. Things change. Uh, mortgage application index declined 1.6% in the la last week on top of a 1.5% decline the week before. Uh, a 4% decline in refinancing applications. Purchase applications were up about 1%. So the mortgage industry is telling us there's a softness in the home buying market. So um, refinancing rose to as much as 75% of all mortgage loans, while when interest rates fell below 3.6% on the 30-year fixed. Unless rates reach that level again, it's highly unlikely that refinancing will regain a significant portion of the mortgage loan market. So the average mortgage now is starting to climb. The average monthly mortgage loan rate for a 30-year conforming fixed rate mortgage is sitting at 4.07%. For a jumbo, it sits at 4.06%. So a jumbo rate's actually lower than a regular 30-year fixed, which is kind of odd. The average rate for a 15-year fixed rate mortgage fell to uh, rose to about 3.29%. So if you just want to get a five-year uh, arm, adjustable rate, 2.99%. Snapchat CEO, they've hit 100 million users. He's been interviewed at a conference, the, the Recodes Code Conference in Rancho Palo Verdes in California. Um, he, the young company has a pretty smart CEO as far as what you know, the perception of him is. Um, valuation is about $15 billion. He talked with Walt Mossberg and Kara Swisher on topics like the company's growth plans and the lack of diversity in tech. He also talked about how Snapchat will eventually come public. The company's worth about $15 billion now. Um, Facebook offered to buy them for $3 billion many, many, many months ago. So he said, and something that's interesting about Snapchat is it's a different type of messaging. Whether it be pictures or text, in theory, they turn to dust. Some people have figured out how to stop that. But the idea is some of the things you post don't necessarily have to come back to haunt you. Now, there's some media companies that are interested in this, where they want to give you content, maybe not a 30-minute show, but maybe a, a four minutes of the show, or maybe a whole 30-minute show to get you kind of like that tease going. They'll get your information from Snapchat for advertising, and th at the end, the show's gone. Or maybe like a Taylor Swift, where she can record a video. Hey, everybody, it's me, Taylor Swift. Um, I got a concert coming up in your part of the woods. Because, again, Snapchat knows your zip code and everything, and she could record it, and it's gone. So you, it's media that you don't necessarily want to have. Eh, you get the idea. 
They're a rare startup not based in Silicon Valley. Asked why the company set up shop in LA rather than the center of the tech world, Spiegel said that Silicon Valley is overwhelming and that he enjoys the LA lifestyle. Interesting. That's not what the Bay Area wants to hear if we want to maintain and protect our uh, way of living, per se, as far as real estate goes. So cost of data breaches is increasing to average about $3.8 million. We hear about them all the time. Yesterday, it was the IRS saying that they've had information breached. Um, and it's interestingly enough, not from the actual IRS website where you submit data, but from a website where you can go to see your data. So where they're only asking for very simple things, like maybe your uh, social security number, your last name, and your zip. And at that, they can go pull all your records. So that's the one that got breached. And 100,000 plus records were breached. But the cost of data breaches is rising for companies around the world. Total cost now is expected to be 3.8 million, up from last year's 3.5 million. Direct costs include hiring experts to fix the breach, investigating the cause, setting up hotlines for customers, and offering credit monitoring for victims. Business is lost because um, how much business is lost to the corporation? Uh, and businesses are wary right now. It's, they're getting hit. High-profile attacks have hit Sony, J.P. Morgan, uh, Target, Home Depot. In the last year and a half, it's occurring as, as organized crime. They're well-funded groups. They work Monday to Friday. They're probably better funded and better staffed than a lot of people who are working to defend against them. The cost of a data breach is about $154 per record. Um, so you have to have a portfolio that includes some sort of cybersecurity thought, in my opinion. 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. I'm Rob Black, talking money, investing, and more. Find me online at robblack.com. have an event coming up. You can find out more about that at robblack.com. financial money investing and more companies are sending more cash back to shareholders some people love this dividends and stock buybacks some people hate it people who want to see new factories and research and development um, cost of data breaches are increasing to the average 3.8 million dollars for a company the average cost of a record being lost or stolen is up to 154 bucks from 145 dollars last year Burger King has a young CEO. He's 33 years old. He's turned around the company. In just five years, Burger King is almost unrecognizable. They're showing growth in an industry that's got wide slowdown. Luxury retailer Tiffany is surging. Um, real strong quarter. Um, Microsoft is roaring right now. The software giant is demonstrating a renewed financial discipline and is set for growth in its core business. Will they or won't they buy Salesforce.com? That's a big question. 
800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. Let's bring in CFP Chad Burton. Hey now, CFP Chad Burton. If you want to send him an email to ask a question during the segment, send it to chad at newfocusfinancial.com. But without the email this time, Chad, let's talk mutual funds versus ETFs. What do we need to know and who's the winner? <laughs> well, gosh, you know, it, it's it's tough because it's the, the area. And a lot of ETFs are very new. They do very well in the beginning sometimes. And it's really the long term. In terms of ETFs versus mutual funds, I like them both. Okay. I, I can't say I like one other that, over the other. There's definitely certain ETFs I don't like. There's a lot of ETFs that have leverage or want to go inverse the stock market where people think that they're the way to perfectly protect their portfolio. Um, in periods of low interest rates and rising rates, I do not like bond ETFs. Gotcha. Those are the ones that would be quickest to be sold and have pricing issues when you're trying to sell. Um, so where I really, really like them, Rob, is large cap, okay. mid cap, U.S. I like them in those areas. Or when I look at my overall portfolio and I say, you know what, I just don't have enough technology or I don't have enough health care or I want to start accumulating financials, then I like to use some of the spiders to go in and get a, a broad shot into the overall stock market. I might have been sleeping when you said this. Why don't you like the emerging markets? Because oh, Here's the deal. Some of the, the emerging market ETFs are just the big, well-known names in those areas. Okay. And they only change once a year. And in an emerging market type of a fund, some of the successful ones have usually higher turnover and more broad exposure. I don't want just 25 stocks in China of the ones that are, some of which might have too much government control, uh, too quickly to be sold when people panic. There's a lot of small cap stocks overseas that look really attractive right now or specific dividend ones. Um, you know, you get, get into the brick and you got Brazil, Russia, India, China one of which may be attractive at a certain period of time because they're becoming consumers. The other three, because maybe they're selling commodities and the super cycle might be over. So it's just it's just too inflexible. And in an emerging market or an international play, there's currency issues, there's political issues that might require more active management. ETFs have a reputation for lower fees than mutual funds or traditional mutual funds, that is. Do you prefer ETFs as a manager? As a manager? Yeah. Well, uh, fees are definitely something you have to look at, but when you look at Morningstar, for example, and you're looking at a fund, the returns are net of fees. So if if that's your last thing that you're looking at comparing to things that have a great return, a low standard deviation, good management history, you're comfortable with the process of the management team, you might, and you can't make the decision, you might choose the one on the lower fees. But fees aren't everything. Okay. In large cap and mid cap U.S., it doesn't require a ton of changes, so the lower fees are important. That's why I like them in those areas. But uh, I, it, you know, again, I, I'm still going to stick with the idea. Unless I'm doing a short-term tactical trade, I'm using managed funds for the international side. How do you use ETFs when putting together a tax-efficient portfolio? Well, the greatest assets that you can hold in, when you're accumulating wealth in your taxable accounts are large cap or total stock market or mid cap ETFs because they're low turnover, low annual tax consequences, and you can hold them for t you know, a long period of time. So you have, once you start maxing out your 401k, you, you've maxed out your Roth IRA, you're now investing after tax, you start accumulating large cap, mid cap in your taxable accounts, and then you monitor your overall asset allocation. So if your taxable accounts become large and you start overweighting the US large and mid, then you need to shift where you're contributing in your 401ks 
to make sure that you're still maintaining the correct weight in small cap international and emerging markets, which tend to have more ongoing tax issues. So you want to have those ongoing turnover, high dividend tax issues inside your retirement accounts. Now, ETFs can be kind of like compared to index funds. Does that mean we no longer need to have index funds in our portfolio? Um, a lot of ways, a lot of times it's easier for the dollar cost averager. Like if you're trying to say, I need a fund where I can put in a hundred bucks a month. Sometimes it's easier to go take your first thousand, open up a Vanguard, you know, account and start having 50 bucks sent out of your paycheck into that index fund. So they still have their place. Um, unfortunately, not all ETFs, Rob, are, are indexes. There's a lot of managed ETFs coming out. Yep. Some of which people think, oh, this is a great tax efficient way to invest. However, they rebalance every quarter, and they're actually horribly tax inefficient. Never buy an ETF in the first six months of trading. There's not enough uh, activity. There's not enough people trading the shares, and you right. can end up with pricing errors on the short term when you buy or sell. Sounds good. That's Chad Burton. You can find him at newfocusfinancial.com. That's newfocusfinancial.com. Lots of good content there that you can grab and download and take a look at to spark your ideas when it comes to retirement and wealth preservation issues. That's newfocusfinancial.com. You can drop Chad an email, chat at newfocusfinancial.com. You listen to his shows every day from 1 to 2 here on 1220 AM, New Focus on Wealth. I'm Rob Black. More and more companies are doing dividends and buybacks, and a lot of them are borrowing money to give money to you. That seems kind of weird, right? It is. Billion-dollar stock buybacks are drawing headlines for sure. Dividends increases are also a big factor. Um, companies aren't using that cash potentially invest in sales forces. Maybe equipment, factories, research and development. And that could be a problem. Activist investors have been pushing for changes and saying, hey, you know, Apple, General Motors, um, DuPont, you should give us more cash as shareholders. And typically that'll push the stock up higher. And then the activist is out, and the activist will go on CNBC like um, Carl Icahn and say, hey, I see the stock way higher. They should dividends and buybacks. And he's lining his pockets while you know, promoting his idea. If investment falls inside of a company, then you're losing demand in the economy. You're losing expenditures. You're losing economic stimulus. That's hurting jobs. So there's a big debate. Um, I love dividends and I like buybacks. I can't lie. To me, that's like a strawberry blonde in summer. Like, yeah. So stock buybacks and dividends mean something, but some people don't like the long-term effects. And I agree with that. I'm Rob Black, talking all, talking all things financial. Find me online at robblack.com. Trying to say, oh yeah, it's business time.
brushing our teeth. That's all part of it. That's foreplay. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial. Joining me now, Dr. Jeff Rosen, briefing.com. How are you, Mr. Rosen? Oh, pretty good. How about yourself? I'm pretty good. Excited. Uh, holiday shortened weekend has things kind of buzzy, so to speak. Um, saw two very different reports today. Michael Kors showing a, a big drop in sales, whereas Tiffany showed kind of a drop, but due to currency, not so much. But both high-end retailers. Any thoughts on why high-end luxury took two separate directions? No, actually, I would have expected high-end to be really one of the the better ends or, or better areas in, in consumption. I mean, if we've looked at what we've seen in overall retail sales versus income growth over the last you know six to nine months, it's been a, a bet of uh, consumers adding savings rather than spending. And one possible reason for that is if the income growth is coming from you know the the high earners, so to speak they may not have anything left to buy. So the savings isn't necessarily because people want more savings, but because the people that have the income you know, don't have much more that they could purchase with the extra uh, income growth. So if you look at it, if that's the case, then high-end sales will probably do the best because the added bonus of income is coming to people that could afford the higher-end goods. Okay. So retail kind of has that split then of the haves and the have-nots. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's one of the – there is no perfect explanation right now of why the savings rate is increasing. Uh, if you looked at it over the last six months, you've had you know the savings rate increase from about 4 to 5%. Uh, and a lot of this is coming during a time when – uh, the cost of debt is extremely low. The amount of debt to assets, the amount of debt to income has drastically declined. So consumers should be able to take on more debt at their current rate. But instead of taking on more debt, they're doing quite the opposite. They're either paying down debt with a higher savings rate or they're just taking on more savings. And one of the possibilities is that uh, – you know, it's not the fact that consumers are paying things down or whatnot. It's just that extra income is not going to the people that have debt. You know, it's going to people that don't need debt. So you know, those type of buyers don't have much more that they could purchase. So the income inequality problem is resulting in a potential for uh, a break in consumption growth. Okay, now talking about the high-end consumer and the low-end consumer, a little bit of that's going on with a debate of who spends and who doesn't. A little bit, there's kind of a debate now in corporate buybacks and dividends that that money should be going into factories and research and development, uh, improving the sales force. Do you have any opinion on, do you prefer buybacks and dividends from a corporate standpoint, or do you want them to spend and create more jobs? Uh, I want the money to flow through the system. You know, if it goes as buybacks and the buybacks end up enriching a few uh, people as opposed to, you know, the aggregate, that doesn't help. Now, if the buybacks go to, you know, entrepreneurs, let's say, that use that money to invest in other projects or they use the money to spend or they use the money on something where the money flows back, then it's fine. 
What I don't want for economic purposes is that buybacks go into extra dividends, which then are just saved because the people that own those don't have anything else to buy. Now, at the same time, businesses don't need to spend money on uh, new factories or increase their workforce or train their workforce if they don't believe that demand is going to be there. You know, it's a double-edged sword. So why would a business take on the added debt of building uh, more capacity if they can't use that capacity for a profitable venture? Now, there's no reason for it. So you got to somehow entice demand. Now, well, you know, one way to do that would be, you know, government spending. That's probably the option that's not going to happen uh, most likely, but it's probably the option that's most needed at this point if you really wanted to spark a big uh, change or big shift in, in demand growth. Interesting. Um Let's talk about the interest rate environment. Fed's Jeffrey Lacker said he's still undecided on a June rate rise, which I'm only going to assume you think there's 0% chance of that, correct? Yeah, I, I mean, th there's no reason for it. And I don't think that the market is going to, sorry, the Fed is going to surprise the market by raising rates, you know, without giving a fair warning that, you know, we've, we're meeting our targets. Uh, the way the Fed has gone about everything is to be as transparent as possible. So I think the fact that you know Janet Yellen has been more on the, on the fence of raising rates this this time, this meeting, you know, I think it's more likely to happen uh, in a September meeting. I don't think the data is pushing for a rate hike at any point in time, but I think the Fed is is moving in that direction. When do you think the Fed does raise? I think the consensus is September at this point in time. Well, the consensus for econ in economics, so the, uh, basically if you, if you take a survey of economists, it, it's pretty much September, and I think that's what you know, they're, they're moving towards. The Fed Fund's futures numbers are December. Um, I think that that's probably a better time. I think they're more on, on top of what's going on. Um, Yet, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if over the next few months, if the data materially improves, that the Fed futures go more in line with what the economists are thinking. You know, as I said before, I, I look at the inflation situation and I see, you know, core inflation of PCE inflation is, you know, 1.3%, I think, year over year, which is, you know, 0.7 percentage points below target. I look at the unemployment rate, even though the, uh, the official unemployment rate is, you know, about five and a half percent. I think the um, a more realistic view of the unemployment rate is a little over seven percent. If you take those factors, there's no reason why at all the Fed should be thinking about raising rates anytime soon. But you know, there is this notion that you know the Fed wants to get off the zero bound in case it needs to cut rates at a few. And I think that's a terrible argument for raising rates. The the idea that you know, we're going to prepare ourselves for the next recession, even though we haven't fully recovered from the current recession or the, or the previous recession, is not the best way of doing things. But this Fed is seemingly moving in that direction, even if it doesn't move in that direction as quick as some people are anticipating. And they're definitely moving for a rate hike before the data clearly suggests that it needs to be done. And, uh, you know, my guess is that uh, it's going to be a December hike, you know, if not later.
Okay. Now, I think, and you can correct me if I got this wrong, if I have this wrong, um, I think the IMF is preparing to accept China in later this year. Is there ramifications of that into the world economies? No, I mean, China's been a large part of the global economy for quite some time. You know, the fact that it becomes, you know, a, a bigger member of, you know, the non-governmental organizations that are around them, you know, more or less, I don't think is that big of a deal. I think what was interesting was yesterday that the um, IMF stated that the yuan is now um, in value with the dollar, meaning that they don't believe that the uh, that China is manipulating its currency anymore. And it was kind of interesting because the uh, the Economist magazine's uh, Big Mac index showed the same thing in January. So uh, I, I think that we're coming into a point where the economy of China is uh, reasonable for what its what its currency rate is. I think that uh, that means that you know it, it's becoming more of a true player on the global economy, but it's already a massive part of the global economy. So yeah, I, I don't think it's going to change too much. I'm speaking with Dr. Jeff Rosen, Chief Economist with Briefing.com. Is there anything that you're working on right now that you want to highlight? Well, I think it's interesting. We, the Briefing.com has its own surprise index, and it's based off of the um, Chicago Fed's national activity indicators. And according to our surprise index, there's been a, a big surge in positive surprises over the past few weeks. And, you know, it's gotten some traders over here excited because it's showing that, uh, you know, the market is running up. It's showing that uh, the economy is possibly doing better than, than what people expected. But, you know, we just want to take caution. And, and yes, the surprises are positive, but that doesn't mean the, the surprises are good. I mean, what, what we're seeing is that the the economic numbers as a whole are still pretty weak. It's just that they're better uh, than they were in the past or better than what the, the uh, economists in our, in our survey have believed. So economic growth remains, you know, lackluster, but uh, we're seeing some positive turnarounds in terms of what the, against the perceived thoughts of, of where the economy is. Thanks very much. That's Dr. Jeff Rosen with Briefing.com. He is the chief economist with Briefing.com. I highly recommend checking out the website. <clears throat> His content is top-notch. Um, but again, we get content on the opening bell. We get, you know, there's special reports there. There's industry insight. There's momentum stocks. There's technicals. There's swing traders. Um, there's too much content. Updates on new IPOs coming out taking a look at some of the market internals. Um, I really like The Economist, Dr. Jeff Rosen. Um, I think he adds an enormous amount to the show. And, uh, you can find out more about him at briefing.com. That's briefing.com.
Welcome in. Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Anything that's on your financial mind, let's talk about it. A couple things to take a look at as far as the markets go today. Tiffany's. Breakfast at Tiffany's. Very famous movie, right? It turned into a bountiful buffet, complete with the finest crystal and flatware. I'm not that much of a big fan of luxury retail. Whether it be cars or jewelry, I I get the little blue box. I do. I get the excitement of diamonds. I do. I would prefer that most people stop and think before they go to Tiffany's. Now, keep in mind, there's a guy, not a guy, that sounds so lame of me just to say it like that. There's a guy who bought his dog two gold watches. Um, That's right, two gold watches. Two Apple iPhone, two Apple watches. Say what? Uh, I know, right? Um, And those are like $18,000 watches, I think. Uh, Maybe a little bit more, depending on what options you get and things along those lines. But he's one of the sons of, of China's richest man, or one of China's richest men. Um, pretty fascinating. I'm just not that big of a guy into um, high-end luxury. Now, Michael Kors got smashed today. And the thought is that some high-end retail is going to do well, some high-end retail is not going to do as well. And one of the areas that not doing well could be, you know, Apple is taking away some of the luxury purchases that used to go towards things like Michael Kors. The Apple Watch is a major threat to Fossil. Michael Kors watches are ubiquitous. But now that there's a trendy timepiece, the Apple Watch, analysts predicted last year, the tech-savvy watch, which launched in April, price tag of $349, some even much higher, is that it's going to eat into Michael Kors. So analysts are increasingly concerned about Fossil, which makes watches for more than a dozen brands, including Michael Kors, Marc Jacobs, Burberry, in the first year, Apple will sell more in revenue in watches than anyone else on the planet, as far as watchmakers. So we continue to watch that kind of story. Um, and I think that's interesting, um, to say the least. I do love how the market works and how it changes on a regular basis. Um, there's an iPhone bug that's crashing people's phones with a single text message. I don't think I have much to say about that at this point in time. Uh, to me, that's not a, a reason to sell a stock. Back in the 1990s, you would have seen that stock. You know, uh, companies would come out and say, "Hey, we've launched a new product, or we're going to put out a press release." And just by putting out a press release, there's going to be a press release. Stocks move higher. Um, to be kind of crazy. There's a lot of trends that I like to follow. There's a lot of demographics that I like to follow. America's getting older, and as we get older, we're 
embracing technology and we're embracing sensors and as we're getting older we want to stay healthy and embrace that technology and that favors companies like Nike if people have to take 10,000 steps a day because their wristband tells them to they're going to be monitoring their shoes a little bit closer so that's both a play on a trend as well as demographics um, what was the number that I saw recently on the tied towards Nike Nike is one of my favorite stocks. Even at these prices, it's not great for the short term, but I think it's still a great company that will figure it out over any term of time. Roughly two-thirds of the U.S. adult population is participated in regular exercise, with one-third of those people using a wearable device or app to track their fitness. There's a symbiotic relationship developing in which the environment promotes improved health and wellness, encourages greater activity, leading to rising usage and demand for fitness knowledge, footwear, and activewear. Um, Earnings per share growth, 14% year over year, 40% least adjusted return on investment capital, free cash flow growth of 16%. Um, annualized growth rate is stunning there, and that supports dividend and a big buyback on a regular basis. So there is some concern on some trends that we have to be careful of. Uh, mobile phone users from 1995. Uh, to 2014. In 1995, you talked about 1% of the population. Now you're talking about 73% of population penetration. And it's tough to get to 100%, but you could kind of see where maturity starts to happen. Uh, the biggest companies as far as technology goes, if you go back to 1995, it was Netscape worth $5.4 billion. Now it's Apple worth $764 billion. Um, back in 1995, Apple had a valuation of $3.9 billion market cap. There's a company called Axel Springer, RentPathWeb.com, PSINet, Netcom Online, IAC Interactive. None of those companies are on the list 20 years later. I think that's worthy of note. Um, just throwing it out there for you that things change a lot. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial. You can find me online at robblack.com. It's robblack.com. Thanks for listening to the show. I'll talk to you soon. Views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.